it's absolutely been an extraordinary day. We've been talking about health moonshots all afternoon and all morning, as well as the health transformers achieving them. I thought we'd kick off the conversation um, really just by understanding your moonshot. Uh, what do you care about? What's the moonshot, not just of yourself, but also foundation medicine? Yeah, the first thing I want to do is uh, thank, thank you for the invitation to speak here. This is a remarkable conference, and I greatly appreciate the fact that I get to follow Bill McDermott, Vice President Biden, and Craig Venter. So uh, that's, uh, that's very kind of, uh, I think that was a Crime Brothers joke, joke right. by the way, right. so I'm not sure. You know, what, what you'll hear from, I think the, the story that you'll hear from me in Foundation Medicine is one that's really consistent with one that you heard from the Vice President. Uh, as you hear vice, the Vice President describe what the moonshot looks like, in some regards, you might think, of, you think about it as some forward-looking statement that is, you know, that's going to get some legs in the coming years. Absolutely not. Versions of the moonshot are happening today in this country, and when we first heard this idea of moonshot described about a year ago, I, I know I and, and, and the vast majority of people at Foundation Medicine felt like they were describing the story of something that we've been working on for the past five or six years in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So what are we passionate about? What does our moonshot look like? Our moonshot looks is based on the idea that we have to understand every patient's cancer at the level of the molecular blueprint, right? If we're fixing a car back in the 1930s, when that, you know, when that uh, uh, T-model Ford rolls in, you, it's making a noise and you know, the mechanic on the way in probably already has a pretty good idea of what the challenge is with that car. If he's sitting at his gas station, his petrol station back in the 1930s. Cars today are so much more complicated that it's probably just sheer luck if the mechanic has an idea of what that car sounds like when it's rolling into the garage or his, in, in, into, his, or into his station. That's where cancer care is. We can't just listen to, just, just speculate based on a, a, a very small snapshot into a patient's disease that, okay, we understand it. We ran a single test, we looked at a protein marker, we looked at a specific gene, or we know this female has breast cancer, and just because it's this stage of breast cancer, we know how to treat her. No, we don't. We think we do, but we get it wrong far too often when it comes to cancer care. So what we're passionate about is really using this technology that helps us understand the human genome. At the level of the tumor's genome, we want to be, we see ourselves as the company that's the best in the world of doing, at doing two things. Extracting information from a patient's tumor, and then giving that information context, so when it goes back to the physician, so when it goes back to the oncologist and even ultimately to the patient, he or she understands exactly what to do with that information. Now, in order to do that, just because we can do that from a technology standpoint today, there are so many barriers built into the system that stop us from doing that efficiently. That's what we're driving towards. And when I hear the vice president talk about where this has to go and what we have to do, I'm incredibly optimistic because it's not about the invention of new technology. It's about breaking down barriers and collaborating. And I disagree a little bit with Craig when someone asked him the question about, you know, are there companies out there that you respect? Oh, God, yeah. There are so many companies doing amazing work at all levels of our ecosystem. And we do, in fact, have to find a way to make sure that these innovations are going to make it all the way to the patient. So you've been, you mentioned focusing on not just the cancer moonshot, but also curing many diseases um, over, the, over the last several years. What's different today? What's changed over the last five or six years that really sets us up 
in a, a, new, a new position to really make more progress? What's, there's, I think there's two, two parts to the answer. One is what's changed and what is what is changing. What has changed as again, I just keep referencing back to the vice president's comments because every time I hear him say this, I think he's spot on. This is no longer about the invention of new technology. Yes, we need new drugs. There's no doubt about it. We need more drugs. But there are thousands, there are thousands of compounds in clinical development today that are targeted to the specific patient's cancer. So they are coming along and they are going to continue to come along. So the, the, what's changed is that we have the technology available today to do this. What's changing is I think just, just the social dynamics of the ecosystem, right? And understanding that, um, you know, I, I know a physician stood up earlier and said, um, I'm not really that excited about getting my genome sequenced. Yeah, that's reasonable. I got mine sequenced, but it was kind of boring to be honest with you. I don't know. I know I'm Italian. I didn't get any surprises in my ethnicity. Um, I didn't find that I was predisposed to anything. But what we have to understand that is that in the cancer world, getting the tumor sequenced is fundamentally different than me, Mike Pellini, getting my genome sequenced. That's something cool that wasn't helpful to me today. Maybe it'll be something valuable in the future. But when you, when you can understand that tumor and you can act upon that tumor, and we frankly, we have the payer system that's corrected in this country. We have access to drugs. Clinical trials are no longer residing in the top 20 or 30 or 40 academic institutions in the country. They're actually throughout the United States. And so if somebody's in a remote area of, uh, you know, maybe, the, maybe they're 100 miles or 200 miles from San, San Francisco, California, they shouldn't have to drive into UCSF or Stanford to get to a clinical trial. They should be able to go to their local oncologist and enroll in a clinical trial with cutting edge care there. How soon that's do you think what's that's changing. Gonna, how soon do you think that's going it, to It's changing as we speak. It's their pharmaceutical companies, their organizations like Foundation Medicine. There's the, the, the moonshot that's preaching this and making clinical trials a fundamental focus of what they do. But it's not, you know, one organization. It's, you know, Santa Fe is, is not going to be the one organization that changes everything. But Santa Fe and Roche Genentech and Bristol Myers Squibb and all the pharmaceutical companies and the foundation medicines of the world and maybe even the lab cores of the world and, you know, tech organizations, that's what has to come together in order to drive it so there's a holistic solution. You know, what we should be able to do and we will be able to do very soon is you get your tumor sequenced and when that physician is sitting down with you in his or her office, you can pull up all the relevant information on your drug, on your drug, on, on the drugs that are available, on the clinical trials that are not available halfway across the country, but they're available in your local, in your own backyard. That, that's what's changing, and this is changing in the real time. So I'm incredibly optimistic that over the next two, three, four, five years, this landscape is is going to be overhauled yet again. So one of the things that I think is so exciting today is just in the in the discussion at events like these, and w when you hear people like yourself or, or the vice president or, or Dr. Venter, that, that's never been my, those two <laughs> names have never been in the one sentence before. So that's well, that's there, great. there's this optimism now right. that that wasn't around even a few years ago, and uh, you know I, I think about um, the 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 bold uh, goal set recently, I think by um, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative to try to cure all disease in the next hundred years. Um, how does this happen, and, and more importantly, how do we speed that up from 100 years to less, less time than that? Yeah, I wish I had the answer. Um, 
uh, to that is question. It, is, is but is collaboration? But I can, like well, you that's were an aspect of it. So let me think about it um, in, in a couple of different ways. One is that I, I, there are many different types of people on this planet. Um, if I oversimplify two types of CEOs, right? There's the CEO, that's the Craig Venture of the world, and the Mark Zuckerberg of the world, and these guys are thinking out 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, and 100 years. That, that's not me. I, I know that's not me. I certainly have a picture of what things might look like in 10 or 15 or 20 years, but I have a much clearer image of what things will in fact look like in five years, in six years, in seven years. And so I think we need a combination. We need the human longevities that are pushing far off into the frontier, right? They're, they're out there, they're pioneering new land, new land. Foundation Medicine was doing that five or six years ago. We were a pioneer and we continue to be, but we're a pioneer that's delivering this information to cancer patients today. And so one way that I think about the answer to that question is that we need folks in the trenches executing today. And that means we have to share information today. We have to know where every single company's clinical trial is today. We have to know that when we see a cancer patient and we, you know, hundreds of specimens come into Foundation Medicine every single day of the week. And I always say, if you think you're having a bad day, walk into our accessioning department, sit down and spend an hour or two there open up, opening up boxes and read that requisition form. Because we're not getting the, you know, the, the, the males with an early stage colorectal cancer or a, you know, a likely curable prostate cancer or a female with a very early stage breast cancer. We're getting patients that have really complex disease and we see hundreds every single day and you're kind of your heart sinks. And so what happens, not kind of, your heart sinks, my heart sinks when I see these patients. So when we sequence that information and we associate it and contextualize that information with, with the clinical trials and the drugs that are available, granted, it can benefit that physician and his or her patient on a one-off basis. Or we can find a way to share that information so even if a, pa even if a physician and patient, physician patient encounter here in San Francisco saw that patient, very complex patient with a, maybe a bit of an unusual cancer, that that physician in Arkansas, that physician in Pennsylvania, that physician in Germany, when he or she is sitting down with the patient can also benefit from that. That's, that's very doable today, and we can solve some of these issues in the next five years, which will ultimately pave the way mm -hmm. for that long-term vision. Right. So, they you know, I like to hand. break down these barriers today, and we have to find a way to share data. It's why our company, uh, you know, we are the largest contributor to the Moonshot, to the, to the big data initiative uh, by Moonshot. We have put out more information on, can on pediatric patients with cancer. I'm told, it's, I'm told the data set that we released earlier last year is two to three times greater than all the publicly available information in the world for kids fighting cancer. I mean, that's insane that one company in Cambridge, Massachusetts could put out information, uh, information, these sequenced tumors on, on, on 1,500 kids, and it doubles or triples the amount of publicly available information. Again, that's what the vice president is driving at. It's easy for our organizations to do that, and we all have to be thinking that way, and that's how we'll make real progress in this field. Um, by the way, we are going to open it up to questions, so we'd like to make this interactive. If anyone does have a question, we're going to have a couple of mic runners. Uh, feel free to raise your hand and, and jump in. Um, while you guys are thinking of, of questions, you know, one, one of the, the big challenges, you know, in addition to breaking down the data silos and, and figuring out how to collaborate, really has to do with the business models, things like cost, 
and, and how reimbursement works with, with some of these new innovations. What are your thoughts there? Um, do you have any recommendations or where things need to go to really uh, fix things in a way that, that brings these types of uh, technologies and innovations to more people? Yeah, where the system is, one area where the system is really broken down is that we're in an era where innovation is happening so quickly. If you expect each company and every, every healthcare startup to find, to generate all the data and do everything that they have to do and ultimately get, in, in, in order to ultimately get that payer to pay for what they do, it's going to take us a long time to innovate if we're each forced to do it on our own. If we're taking, we take tests through the FDA, we take products through the FDA. We know the ground rules. We know what the FDA is going to need. We know what the timelines are. It's very straightforward. The payer world is fundamentally different. The payer world, there are no standards that are established. If you know how you have to interact with one organization, that means you know how to interact with one organization. So it's as if there are thousands of FDAs, and for each one of these organizations, you have work to do in order to convince them to pay for whatever your product is. Um, overstating it a little bit, but just a little bit. And so I think what we need to see out of the payers is something that's, they need to take, they need to hear the collaboration message. Now fortunately some of them are, because when there is an early stage opportunity for innovation, something that could really impact healthcare, if that company could sit down with an innovation unit at a big payer and convince them that if your approach is successful, and you know, if it can do what your organization, what you and your organization thinks it can do, and you work together with that payer, or you work together with a set of payers that have, similar, have a similar vision, we can actually generate the data in a much more consistent, a much more streamlined fashion. So even if, I'll make up the number, even if I have to invest $5 million more in an effort to generate data, $5 million more in a clinical study, but on the, or maybe it's $15, $15 million more, but I know on the back end of that, there's going to be a data set that that payer, or better yet, that group of payers is going to make a decision upon, there's a much greater likelihood that I, my shareholders, my VCs, depending on who, who, who it is, are going to support that type of investment. So the payers, I mean, they're in a tough spot. There's so much innovation, innovation happening that, you know, they're not just saying, oh, you know, they're not just uh, putting their head in the, you know, they're not just putting their head in the sand, but they're getting bombarded every single day. And I think we have to come up with a mechanism through which the relationship with payers it's not an adversarial one. It's one where we're all driven to the same end game and we're trying to drive the data that ultimately result, you know, results in better, in, in better care. So you know, the payer challenge in this industry is enormous and it's growing, but part of the solution rests in this notion of sharing and collaborating information and collaborating with information. It, it, it's not, it's not, it's really not all that difficult, but there has to be willing parties, and I think we will see payers, at least, uh, least forward-thinking payers, start to engage pe uh, companies in, a, you know, in their earlier stages. That's interesting. And uh, you have an interesting connection into startup health. I thought it would be uh, you know, useful to share that story, and it's going to lead into a couple other questions. Yeah, it's, a, it's a crying brother story. Um, you know, it's, uh, I asked Stephen when, how long ago we met, and I was thinking it was like a year and a half ago, but it reminded me that it was actually February of, of 2016. And 
one of the reasons that I haven't told this story, but one of the reasons I appreciate the chance to tell this story is because I think it, it plays into the idea of being an entrepreneur and, 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 and just doing things when you don't necessarily what they're going to lead to. Um, we have an extraordinarily busy company. Uh, you know, we work around the clock, and uh, we need that vision of, to improve cancer care, and, and I mean, that, that keeps us going. Um, but I think it was probably December of 2015, maybe November, I received an invitation to speak at this conference down in Florida. I had no idea where Lake Nona it was. I, I just, I didn't know anything about this meeting. But when the note came in, the request came in, I looked at it, and I talked to Sue, or heads up our communication is sitting over here. And it was an impressive list of people. And I said, what do we know about this? Should I go do it? And we were debating. So it looks like a great group of people. I'm just going to go do it, and we're going to camp out for three days there. That's all I'm going to do. I'm going to just find that I'm not going to go down, give a talk, and return, and just come back to Cambridge. So I went down, and on the very first night, we're taking a tour of this facility, and I didn't know anyone there whatsoever, um, which was fine. But I was standing next to a person who also appeared to not know anyone there. So we were going through the tour. We started talking. And it turned out that, you know, it turned out that it was Dr. David Shulkin, who's the Undersecretary under of the Veter Veterans Affairs Administration. And we struck up a relationship, and we spent about an hour, hour and a half talking that night. And um, he's doing some really cool things, and that relationship has developed over the course of the past year. So I thought, okay, it's already it's paid for itself. I learned something. We made a great connection here. The next night, I was having a drink at a function, and um, I think I sat down next to, I forget the exact connection, but we started, I'm sure it was over wine or beer, we had a, I was sitting down talking to Stephen. And after a little while, I said, Stephen crying, I'm like, I've, I've been told that I have to get to know your brother. He's a, he's a guy from Jefferson in Philadelphia. And so Stephen, instead of saying, well, I'll connect you guys via email afterwards, the next time you're in Philadelphia, see if you can meet him, breaks out his cell phone, calls up Howard. And so, and then the next thing I know, he hands me a cell phone, and Howard and I just started talking for about 20 minutes. We knew so many of the same people. There was so much overlap, because I do a lot of work with Jefferson as well in the cancer center there. And it was just one chain of events after another. And the moral of the story is, is you just never know, right? I mean, we go down to, to Washington, D.C. all the time now for these policy meetings. And one thing that's incredibly consistent about a policy meeting is that I have no idea what the outcome of that meeting or that day is going to be until after the fact. But you know what? More times than not, something good comes from that day. Something good comes from that meeting. You know, I've had the chance to meet with the vice president multiple times over the last year. Uh, who knew that we would be so deeply involved in, in the moonshot and, and really one of the major data contributors to that effort? Um, so when I look back on it, it's just, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a couple of crazy brothers, but that's, that's, that's a good thing. And I say that in a very positive there, there's way. There's a crazy sister there, And, too. and I just met, but I can't, I, can't, I can't, you know, confirm or deny that crazy, statement, though. I'm sort of a brother. <laughs> <laughs> They've dubbed but, me Ira Krein. But it, there's, there's something to this idea. If you just don't know, and there's a good group of people that gets together, you know, good things can come of it. And uh, that's certainly something I learned through this I, relationship. I, so thank you, Stephen. I think, I think that is a great lesson. Um, I'd love to open it up. Um, are there any questions in the audience? Yeah. Uh, hey, Liz, do you have a, a microphone? Um, hi, Jonathan Dariani from Cognotion. Question for... Those of us who have friends and family with complex cancers, would you encourage us to have them explore tumor sequencing at this stage if it's not you know, something that their oncologist is pushing? And how do you feel 
that about the majority of the way oncologists treat this issue and how they interact with innovation at the provider level? Is there is there the right attitude? Is there the right information? Or is this something where the consumer needs to be educated and advocating as well? Yes, 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 yes. I mean, there's, there's a whole series of questions to unpack there. There's, there's clearly a bell curve, right? We know there's a bell curve in, in, the, in the clinical community. Uh, fortunately, what we're seeing, we just announced our results from Q4. We continue to see volumes grow significantly despite all the obstacles out there. So the academic, virtually every major academic medical center in the United States is if they have a patient uh, with a, even a relatively com a complex, I'm kind of throwing all the tumors, anything that's not relatively straightforward, where there's a 80, 90, 95% cure rate, I'll call that complex. Um, they're, they're almost all of them are pushing the direction of not just running a gene or five genes or 10 genes, but let's explore the genome of, of the tumor. Okay, I think that's, there's an important starting point. But we also see about 60%, 60% of our volume each quarter comes from the community. So it's starting to reach out into the community. The frustration in the communities around the United States is it's a genuine one. It's doctors saying, you know, I get this information back. I see there might be an opportunity for me to intervene with my patient, but I, I, I don't know how to get that drug. I don't know how to get that clinical trial. And that goes back to the idea where we have to share information and break down these barriers. So absolutely. Um, I, I think five years from now, if a, if a woman, just to go to a, a more short, straightforward example, if a woman is diagnosed with a very early stage breast cancer and it's, it's, it's ER positive, PR positive, HER2 positive, uh, you know, it's a, it's a half centimeter tumor, um, the cure rate should be 95% and I'm not convinced that even five years from now she should be getting that tumor sequenced. But for the next, for that set of tumors and is that, that don't fall into, well, because we know, because we don't, you know, you don't want information just because you can do it. The false right? positives, too much well, data. It's, it's, it's data overload, data overload. But if we have something that works and there's a 95% cure rate, maybe research takes it up a little bit further by then. I'm just not convinced that we have to be pushing sequence, pushing the sequencing of the tumor on an individual like that, on a, on, a, on, a, on a patient example like that. I think that where the value is, is for all the others, where the cure rate is not 95%, where it might be 80% or it might be 20%. I think about individuals diagnosed with small bowel tumors, you know, tumors of the gallbladder. These, these patients, yes, they're standard of care, but standard of care sucks for so many patients, it's horrible, right? And, and just, and if your oncologist says, you know, here's a win, three months, you know, the, the data shows there's three, three months of additional life, while that can be very important at times, there's a parallel path that I would encourage people to explore, and I feel very strongly about that. So it might not be plan A, but in everything else, in so many things that we do in life, we have a plan B, a plan C, and a plan D. Don't wait until plan A runs its entire course, the individual's really in a tough, shit, in tough, in a, in tough condition, and then you say, my gosh, I'm gonna go get the tumor sequence. If you have a condition where you believe that there's a high likelihood of recurrence, get the information, have your plan of attack, so if that patient's tumor recurs, you have your next, pl you have plan B, you have plan C, you have plan D. 
That's how I would look at it. We have to turn this from a game of roulette into a game of chess. Far too many roulette wheels are being spun with cancer patients. We need to focus on a game of chess and make it strategic if we're going to really continue to make a dent in this, in this broad group of diseases. So uh, time for one more question. Uh, and while the mic's getting there, I want to ask you a super quick question. Um, there's a lot of entrepreneurs in, in the room and throughout the festival, a lot of health transformers. How, how can they be helping an organization like, like yours? Focus on, you know, as, as entrepreneurs, you focus on the challenges that can be overcome. The challenges in our space are not necessarily the ones that, that have to do with extracting that information, that genetic data from a patient's tumor. It's all about the delivery of health care. And so anything that breaks down the barriers to allow a patient to get access to that drug, to help a pharmaceutical company connect with that patient, uh, to help a payer see the light sooner, we have to overhaul the, you know, we have to overhaul the health care, the, the payer system in this country. Um, Think about the barriers that stand in the way of advancing technology. I love focusing on technology, but I'm not enamored with technology, at least in terms of medical innovation. I think about, okay, if a technology is really exciting, what are the things that we need to focus on in order to open the door to get that, to get that technology to patient care, and so in, 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 into the clinic, I should say. Those, to, those are incredibly meaningful, and if a company can do that, or better yet, if organizations, companies can do that, it changes the game. So we, it's the delivery of healthcare. It's absolutely the delivery of healthcare. So, yeah. Okay, uh, we'll take this one, then, and then you, Ira. All right. Almost second to last question. Thanks. Yeah. So, uh, as can a you say who you're? Oh yeah, sorry. I'm uh, Joshua Schiffman. I'm from uh, Huntsman Cancer Institute uh, at the University of Utah. So, as a pediatric oncologist, I love, love, love that you're so centered on pediatric oncology. Uh, a, a comment and then question. Uh, I love the chess analogy as well. One thing, though, that I would caution against is if you only sequence at diagnosis, obviously there's going to be evolution and cl clonal evolution and so on. So you may, if you only use the primary diagnostic uh, sample, obviously miss what you could target during relapse. So I think everyone should be targeted at diagnosis and use that information at diagnosis when it's most relevant. My question is, how do you reconcile some of the reports that are coming out now that different um, commercial uh, sequencing groups have slightly different results. And how do the, the clinicians and how should the patients uh, use that information? Joshua, you, you know, you're spot on. Um, so what we know, what we believe today, what we know the data shows us is that if you can fully assess the tissue sample itself, I think that's our best estimate of truth. So then the question comes in, and, and then even in that truth, the reason that we're taking everything through the FDA is we know how darn hard it is to do what we do, and it's such an easy thing to screw up. You don't plug in a sequencer and say, produce the results. It, it, it's so easy to screw up. There are a thousand steps along the way, so we think new standards have to be established, and we're actually fans of the FDA getting a little bit more involved in this space. But then once the tumor, once the, once the, the, the cancer sequence, Right, there's, there's opportunities to use blood to monitor disease. And we think liquid biopsies, especially in the form of circulating tumor DNA, is going to be a mainstay of cancer care in the future. Here's the challenge. For every single cancer, the way the, utili the utility of that blood-based sample could be different. What a pancreatic cancer sheds into the blood might be fun 
is fundamentally different from what a lung cancer might shed into the blood. And until we get the data, we just don't know. And so we think there's danger in saying blood, 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 it's easier, get blood and you can get the answer. We think we need, we think we should say, okay, tissue is the, is the gold standard today, that we know. If you can't get tissue, then blood is a nice second option if it's an organization that's doing it well, and there are a few that are doing it well on the liquid biopsy. There are a few that are doing it well on the liquid biopsy side. So there's still so much for us to learn. Uh, but I, I agree with your comments 100, you know, I agree with them fully. We still have, there are disparities that pop up. And until we start working more closely with the FDA, until we set these standards higher and higher and higher, until we compare data in a large study, we're just not going to know the answer. So we need folks like you to help us tease it apart. So one but last quick question. I'll try to make, it, make my answer short. Ira, Ira Brin. Question. Uh, what, what, and we were talking about access and uh, about payers. What percentage of the samples that are sent to you are covered by a third party payer and what percentage are, are out of pocket? So, um, great question. I'm trying to think, how, how do I answer it uh, quickly? So I'll try to be succinct here and that is, um, about 30% of the tests that we receive are from patients who fall under Medicare, so Medicare beneficiaries. Um, we've run over 100,000 specimens. We have not had a single test, um, really more than, a, you know, we haven't had very many tests reimbursed by Medicare, but that's all changing right now. We finally see Medicare coming around. They've issued some, some, some coverage decisions for uh, four major indicate. They have one coverage indication for lung cancer, three more drafts were just issued. So we see Medicare coming along and, and we're, we're really pleased by that. With the third party payers, we get, uh, you know, we get roughly half of our tests paid for by third party payers. Um, but we also therefore have to work with patients on a very individual basis to make sure that if they can't afford what we do, there's no way that we are going to withhold care. And so we have a team of people, we have an outside nonprofit organization that works with us. And frankly, we bend over backwards for patients because we will never, ever, ever turn down a patient because they can't, because they can't pay. Uh, so we're in the midst of this battle, but you know, we, I, I'm, I'm comfortable with where things are finally because we're seeing real progress on the payer front. Mike, uh, I just want to thank you for everything that you all do and for being here and sharing your insights today. It's, it thank means you. a lot. Appreciate thank it. you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.